Coming to you from the Forge of Freedom studio in the heart of America, a podcast dedicated to preserving freedom and inspiring personal success. Freedom is born and lives through you, the individual, and it dies in the shadows of tyranny. Motivating our listeners to become well-rounded, freedom-minded people with the body of an athlete, the mind of a stoic, and the spirit of a warrior. The Tree of Liberty lives on through you, the Forge of Freedom. And now here's your host, Alex Uli. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Forge of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Alex Uli, and this is episode 86 of the Forge of Freedom. Today, for uh, the episode for Monday Gun Day, I have a special guest, Clayton Kramer. Uh, Clayton is the author of Lock, Stock, and Barrel, The Origins of American Gun Culture, uh, among other books. But Lock, Stock, and Barrel just happens to be the most recent of Clayton's books. Clayton is also a, a professor of history at the College of Western Idaho. He completed his uh, bachelor's in history in 1994 at Sonoma State University and his master's in history at Sonoma State in 1998. Uh, his specialty is in American history, especially the antebellum period, and his scholarly work on the Constitution has been cited in two U.S. Supreme Court decisions, Heller and McDonald, both cases I have discussed uh, numerous times on this channel. So I'm, I'm excited to have uh, Clayton on the on the show to talk about his his work and history, and also what he's been up to since the Bruin decision. Because uh, I'm, I'm my understanding is that uh, Clayton's been quite busy since that decision came down from the Supreme Court in June of 2022. Uh, I'll certainly link to the to Clayton's website. He's got a blog uh, at, at Blogspot. And he's also got uh, references on at ClaytonKramer.com. So if you want to check out more about uh, the work that Clayton's been up to, I certainly would encourage you to go check those resources out. Uh, Clayton, uh, with all that being said, well, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Clayton, I, I gave sort of a brief introduction there, and I know before we went on, uh, before we hit the record button, we were talking a little bit about what you've been up to recently, uh, especially in the wake of the Bruin decision from the Supreme Court. Would you mind to say just a little bit about that at the outset before we get into your book? Okay. Uh, one of the effects of the Bruin decision is that it, uh, it basically put uh, all the states that still have restrictive gun laws on notice that uh, there is actually a right uh, to, to bear arms for self-defense outside of your home. And that whatever laws states pass have to conform to certain expectations, certain standards. Um, and they, they sort of uh, pointed at the states that have shell issue uh, licensing laws and suggested this is really the path we need to take. They also said that any sort of arms regulations need to conform to the standards of what was recognized in 1791 when the Second Amendment was ratified. If a law existed back then um, and there has a similar law today, uh, you could argue that it's probably constitutional. But if there's no law back then equivalent to a law today, then you're going to have a much harder time making the case that this is constitutional. Yeah, and I think that this is partly why I had some some interest in, in your book. Uh, as we were talking off air, I found your, your work and your book at a, a blog that I read, Gun Culture 2.0 by David Yamani. Uh, and he wrote a review of your book, but then I discovered that you had – 
uh, written several several other books and some scholarship that's been cited by by the Supreme Court, especially in Heller and McDonald. Uh, one thing I'm curious about, I know you've been uh, been busy uh, working on sort of analyzing the historical context and some of the historical arguments that the anti-gun folks have been making and sort of the creative ways they're trying to get around the Bruin decision. Uh, and I didn't ask you about this off air, but did you, have you been following the Rahimi case at all, which was recently uh, argued before the Supreme Court? I've been following the Rahimi case. Um, it's one of those cases where um, the, one of the lower court judges um, who heard the case made the argument, why was this guy out of jail? I mean, this is someone who had, uh, in addition to the domestic violence issue, had been running around town, shooting into the air, um, threatening people with guns, and for some reason he was not in jail. I mean, the, the first time, okay, maybe the guy gets out on bail, but the second time that uh, this guy gets arrested for committing uh, crimes with a gun, um, the question should be, why was he given bail again? And this is a question that, unfortunately, does not, does not get much attention. That is, a relatively small number of people commit uh, the overwhelming majority of violent crimes in America, and to the extent that um, we don't keep them locked up when we catch them the second and third time, uh, this has to be a bit of a problem. Yeah, and, and I guess just briefly, it's probably good. I've talked about all of these cases, uh, Heller, McDonald, Bruin, and Rahimi in, in previous episodes, but just for our listeners who may be listening to this episode in isolation, and you can uh, correct me or, or give your input here, uh, maybe fill in a little bit to my sort of summary here, but uh, Heller, basically, the Supreme Court said that the Second Amendment is not some, it doesn't protect some collective right some right of a militia, it's an individual right to, to keep and bear arms, uh, particularly in one's home, uh, was that issue in, in Heller. And then in McDonald, the Supreme Court incorporated the Second Amendment, uh, saying that the Second Amendment not only applies to federal government action, but also to state government action. Of course, it was challenging a law in the state of Illinois and in the city of Chicago. Uh, and then uh, Bruin, uh, about a decade later, uh, said that people not only have an individual right to keep and bear arms, that it's a right that's uh, protected not only at the federal level, but at the state level against state uh, state government actors, but that it's a, it's a right to that you can exercise outside the home. It's not only a right to keep arms, but to bear arms in public. Uh, and then Rahimi is the first case to reach the Supreme Court after Bruin, and in the Rahimi case, the question is whether uh, the uh, federal statute 18 U.S.C. 922 G8 prohibiting someone subject to a domestic violence restraining order is constitutional. Uh, so is that prohibition constitutional? Because often those are issued uh, in civil cases after only a preponderance of the evidence that someone is a danger to someone else. So is that is it? constitutional to deprive someone of the right to keep and bear arms based on a lower burden of proof than a criminal standard uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, so that's sort of sort of the issue there in the Rahimi case. And of course, the question, as you alluded to, uh, Clayton, is is whether there are historical analogs at the time of the founding that would support the constitutionality of this prohibition. And do you have any do you have any thoughts on that? I would say the evidence is pretty clear that uh, there is no similar law in that period. Um, 
Well, it's really quite surprising is uh, how many of the laws that we just take for granted in terms of uh, federal laws prohibiting possession of firearms uh, simply have no analogs. Convicted felons, for example. Um, I've uh, put together several declarations for several cases involving uh, people who are being charged with being um, convicted felons, people or ex-felons at least, people who have been convicted in the past of possessing a firearm. I have not been able to find any law that uh, in the period before 1791 that prohibited a person from possessing firearms uh, for, the, for, the rest, for, for the rest of their life based on a criminal conviction. There are laws that prohibit people from possessing arms, not because of anything they individually did, but because they were black or they were slaves or they were Catholic um, or they were Indians. There is one case out of uh, Massachusetts where um, Shays Rebellion, which is one of the things that provokes the Constitutional Convention, was an act of treason against the Massachusetts government by some very upset farmers. And uh, uh, they, they had all... Uh, they committed a felony, which was treason, which back then meant drawing and quartering. But what happened was the Massachusetts legislature, uh, rather than try all of them, basically passed a law that said, basically, um, we'll go ahead and uh, grant you, uh, we'll uh, uh, grant you amnesty for, for these crimes you committed in exchange for which you will turn your guns, guns into the state. And if you behave yourself for three years, then we'll return your guns to you. And this is the only uh, prohibition on firearm possession for a criminal act um, after, as a result of, of, uh, uh, of a criminal procedure uh, that I've been, been able to find in, th throughout any of the period before 1791. Did, uh, did you happen to, uh, to, to listen to the oral argument in the Rahimi case? No, I did not. Okay. I know there's been lots of uh, predictions, people trying to read the tea leaves, uh, I read the work I'm sure you're familiar with. It. Well, I know you are because it's in, you've referenced some of his work in, in your book uh, that we're going to talk about here just momentarily. Uh, Stephen Holbrook, uh, he, he's written quite a few books about the, the history of the Second Amendment and the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, he talked about the examples of surety laws and a phrase and noted that they were uh, distinguishable in very important ways from the prohibition on people subject to a domestic violence restraining order. Uh, number one, because an affray was a, a criminal uh, issue, uh, whereas a domestic violence restraining order is not. And the surety law was just a temporary. Uh, you, you could actually get, you, you could actually possess a firearm. You just had to post some surety, some bond, uh, you know, basically either you had to post it or somebody had to post it on your behalf, warranting, that you wouldn't do something crazy. So uh, have you analyzed those two comparisons at all? Uh, yes, the, uh, the surety law, bond laws are sort of interesting because uh, these, are, um, these, are not, these are things that are passed where an individual goes to a judge and says, um, Mr. Smith uh, is a threat to my safety, um, and I, I want you to require him to post a bond of some sort which he will forfeit in the event that he goes ahead and injures me. And uh, the surety bond laws usually specified that uh, the judge had to decide there was actually good reason for to be afraid that Mr. Smith was going to hurt Mr. Jones. Uh, there was one exception, that is, if Mr. Smith had good reason to fear that he was in danger 
uh, he or his property or his family were in danger of attack, then the, the surety bond would not be required. So um, it's a much, much more limited sort of uh, bond requirement than any sort of uh, uh, domestic violence uh, civil restraining order. And, and what about the affray? Did, did you have you looked at that at all? That comparison. The crime of affray um, is a situation where multiple people are engaged in some sort of combat in a public place uh, to the extent that it causes other people to be afraid, which is part of where the term afraid comes from. You had to be afraid of what was happening. And, uh, of course, in this case, uh, uh, this method where someone was committed a crime and they would be arrested, charged, and, and convicted, presumably, and sent to jail for it, whereas in this case, the civil uh, uh, restraining order things do not involve a person having been actually convicted of a crime. There's merely the fear that he might commit a crime. He might do something horrible to his ex-girlfriend. Sometimes there's reason to actually be concerned about that, but that is, concern about that is not a criminal offense. Yeah. And uh, are you aware of any other uh, analogs that might exist from the time of the founding that would be used to sort of support the, the prohibition on people subject to a domestic violence restraining order? Not that I can think of. Um, I've spent okay. a lot of time looking at uh, domestic violence laws in the colonial period, um, and uh, you don't I, you don't see anything like this. I mean, people are 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 charged and sometimes convicted of domestic violence, but uh, it's uh, uh, there's never any notion of uh, disarming people um, before trial or awaiting trial. Well, I, I wasn't aware of one either, but I, I wanted to ask you the question since you're the uh, the the. Uh, historical expert, uh, especially dating back to the to the colonial period. So, uh, I'm I'm glad to to hear that uh, you know I, I hadn't missed something in that regard. Uh, but one thing that bothered me, I I did listen to the Rahimi or argument. I don't want to dwell on Rahimi. I want to get to your book, but it's interesting since it's the most recent case to reach the Supreme Court, and obviously after Bruin, that the court is interested in the history because they're they're looking to historical analogs. Uh, to try to find history that might support the prohibition that the government wants to uphold. Uh, it, this, the government argument seemed to rely on this notion of dangerousness, that there's this long history of, of prohibiting people who are dangerous. Uh, and so while they didn't have any direct or similar analogs, they were sort of encouraging the court to adopt a more broad view of, of what what they should look to for historical comparisons uh, and that basically that there's been this long history of uh, prohibiting people who are dangerous from possessing arms. Do you have any thoughts about that, that argument? Yes. A number of, uh, of arguments have been advanced by both uh, the state of Georgia and by federal prosecutors have, have argued that, that um, there are examples of, of the of, uh, colonial state governments uh, limiting possession by people that were dangerous and they proceed to list Catholics, slaves, blacks, Indians. Um, I mean, it's, I'm surprised they're not embarrassed by this, but they're actually listing examples of these sort of laws that applied only to members of particular races or particular groups that were not specific to individuals at all. They also point to uh, um, the, uh, the test acts of the Revolutionary War period. During the Revolutionary War, uh, the Continental Congress encouraged the states to pass 
laws that said that unless you swore an oath of loyalty to the revolutionary government, um, that you would lose certain civil privileges. You would lose the right to sue. You would lose the right to re receive transfers of land. You would lose the right uh, to vote, to hold public office, um, to possess arms. And so um, in some cases, you were prohibited from certain occupations. If you do not take a uh, swear on a loyalty oath, you could not teach, for example, or be a preacher. And so they point to these, but these are, in fact, not uh, cases that involve uh, any sort of criminal behavior. These are merely people that had not uh, taken the loyalty, loyalty, loyalty oath. So they're very poor examples. And these were an emergency measure taken during the revolution itself when uh, people were actually running around shooting each other. Um, and uh, really, primarily a political act. This is the best they can come up with as a uh, basis for saying, oh, this person is dangerous enough they should not be allowed arms, that they're black or they're Catholic. This has, by the way, been a, a recurring thing. Uh, California's Attorney General has um, attempted repeatedly to have experts uh, defend uh, restrictive gun laws on the basis that, uh, well, um, well, we have a stack of laws that prohibited the um, possession of, of clubs or batons. Um, the baton was one of the issues in a California case. They list all these laws um, that were adopted before the Civil War, and a large number of them applied only to black people, only to slaves, um, um, and uh, or only to Indians. And for some reason, they thought this was okay. I mean, to me, it would be embarrassing to have to point to racist laws and say, this is the basis on which we are trying to justify a law today. Well, I, I think you're right. That's that's the argument that they seem to dance around. They want they want the court to uh, look to this notion of dangerousness, but to, but sort of ignore the the context of that analysis, the the racist context, the sort of hate context, uh, you know, that sort of existed uh, in the the period that they're they're asking the court to look to. Uh, so I hope the court. And sticks to a more strict sort of uh, analogy than than the sort of broad notion of dangerousness, but but that was certainly an argument that was put forth uh, during the Rahimi oral argument. So, um, like I said, it's dangerous to to predict what the Supreme Court might do, but uh, the oral argument seemed like the court might be leaning toward this notion of dangerousness. Unfortunately, at least in my opinion. Well, fortunately, the, uh, the fact that that the uh... Um, the Attorney General's office decided to appeal the range decision to the court at the same at the same uh, term. Uh, it turns out to be a very good thing because uh, range is an example of, a, of a, another category of uh, prohibition where um, the Gun Control Act of 1968 prohibits possession of a firearm by a person who has been convicted of any crime for which you could, you could possibly serve more than one year in prison. Now, this guy, Range, back some many years ago, he and his wife were trying to uh, raise a family of five on $9 an hour. And uh, um, he, his wife filled out some paperwork applying for food stamps, and he went ahead and signed it. Um, apparently, it misstated his income. I guess he was making a little more than $9 an hour. And um, therefore, technically, what he had done, even though he may not have actually filled out the form himself, is because he signed it, he had engaged in food stamp fraud, which at the time 
uh, was punishable by up to three years in prison. And so uh, he was therefore became dis disqualified for ever possess possessing a firearm. Now, the problem here is that uh, there are a fair number of felonies which are not violent. And uh, those nonviolent felonies um, are, can still be disqualifiers uh, for um, uh, from from the standpoint of federal law about possessing of a firearm. So the Supreme Court has an opportunity here to make a distinction between um, people who are actually dangerous um, and people who are not dangerous but have been disarmed just because of the fact that they, um, they, they, they broke a relatively minor law. And the Court of Appeals in the Range case made the point that um, uh, there's all sorts of things which are uh, criminal acts, which if you may, if you go ahead and turn those into firearms disqualifiers, they become very general bans on possession of firearms by a lot of people. I mean, uh, would you consider a, a, a speeding ticket as adequate grounds to disarm someone? I mean, obviously not. Um, so we're in this weird situation where the court is going to have a number of different decisions where it's going to have to sort of navigate a path and decide which things fall into the category of this is a legitimate reason to take away a person's right to keep their arms, and which do not. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the range case because uh, you're right. That's going to, I think, help the court draw this distinction that, that you're pointing to. Uh, the last I'd seen, the court hadn't taken they, – they granted review, but uh, I hadn't seen that they put it on the calendar yet. They, they conferenced about it, but I, I don't think it's on the calendar yet. So I, I, think I, right hope they... I don't think it's been, uh, I don't think it's been conferenced, um, but the fact that they, that they've been, that has been granted for review uh, suggests that it might be an opportunity for justices to say, okay, let's, let's consider both of these sort of uh, as part of a larger question of well, where does this uh, right go? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I hope they do that because that sort of takes the, uh, unfavorability of the the Rahimi uh, sort of uh, you know the, the character of Rahimi you know he's sort of this bad dude uh, that that nobody has any uh, favorable sentiment toward uh, and let's let's look at the the, the larger question that you know and, and sort of take out the the sort of personal or, or emotional response to the to the Rahimi Rahimi's um, attorney exactly uh, Rahimi. Even Rahimi's attorney during the oral arguments, from what I've read in the transcripts, uh, was not prepared to say anything nice about him. Was sort of agreeing that in fact Rahimi was sort of a dangerous person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was my recollection as well. All right, well, uh, Clayton, if it's okay, we'll get we'll get into your book. I certainly appreciate your your commentary there on Rahimi and sort of what's going on at the Supreme Court. Uh, I like I, I enjoy your your perspective in that regard. Uh, one thing I mentioned, obviously, you're a you're a historian, but you, you haven't always been uh, exclusively a historian. At least uh, you were a, a software engineer. Is that is that correct? Yes. Um, when I was going to USC, long long ago, when I got out of high school, my plan was I wanted to be a research chemist. I wanted to study um, the behavior of palladium metal and how it interacts with hydrogen. So I had a very specialized plan. I ran out of money at the end of my first year at USC, and um, I could not get a job flipping burgers anywhere, but I was able to get a job at Jet Propulsion Labs working on the Voyager mission. So um, I basically I ended up switching from uh, my interest in being a research scientist uh, to being a software engineer, 
and I that's what I did until um, 2014. I uh, worked for several startups in in California build, building data, data, telecom datacom equipment, and then I after um, 9/11. There really wasn't much for market for software engineers in the Bay Area anymore. Um, there was actually more demand for software engineers in Boise than there were in California. So I moved up here, which, believe me, is a giant improvement over living in California. I do sort of miss the weather sometimes, but eh, big deal, one thing. But um, uh, when I was working, when I was um, working for a couple of these shops in California. I said, you know, I had to go back to school and get my computer science degree. One of these days, employers are going to start to say, you know, it doesn't matter how good you are. We really need you to have a computer science degree. So I started in computer science classes, and I discovered that I could take two history classes and get A's in both of them with less effort than taking one computer science class. Because one of them is a very demanding discipline, and the other, eh, not so much. Which doesn't have to be the History doesn't have to be demanding discipline, as demonstrated by some of the people who have PhDs in. Um, so at about this point, uh, California passed uh, its uh, the Roberti Roos Assault Weapons Control Act of 1989. I was I was pretty upset about this law. It made really no sense. They had chosen to ignore the uh, the underlying problem, which was that the the killer was a person with a long history of mental illness who had had numerous run-ins with the law and had never actually been locked up for very long. And uh, so they passed a law to deal with, with one particular uh, case, uh, one at the time relatively rare one. And uh, um, they, 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 they swept into the, into their, the mob of, of, the, of the state, large numbers of Californians who had, were no danger to anyone just because they had a semi-automatic weapon. So um, I, I said, you know, I think I'm going to change my major in history. Maybe I can do something to change things. So I changed my major in history. Um, see, uh, by the time I got my bachelor's degree, I just got my second book published. And then I took a year off and wrote a book about black history. And uh, then I went back the following year under peer pressure from my wife, who was working on her master's in English. Completed my master's in in history. Um, my master's thesis uh, was published as my fifth book, and um, then I started writing law review articles, uh, which were cited not only in the two U.S. Supreme Court cases you've mentioned, but in um, about a dozen or more other uh, decisions by state Supreme Courts, uh, federal courts of appeals, and sometimes federal district courts. So. I had an awful lot of opportunity to have an influence, and I've been very pleased to do that. One of the other areas of interest for me, uh, which is of great relevance to this entire problem about mass murder, is the destruction of the mental health system in the United States starting in the 1960s and 1970s. This put large numbers of people out on the street many of them uh, eating out of trash cans, living on park benches, capped out uh, in the middle of city parks, um, who were mentally ill. And in 1960, they would have at least had a warm bed to sleep in and someone to uh, make sure they were fed. And uh, a small fraction of these uh, severely mentally ill people 
um, making started to make headlines in, in the 1970s by going out and committing mass murder. Well, sometimes with guns, sometimes not. Um, there's one in particular. Uh, the um, Dr. Oda was a optometrist who lived in Santa Cruz. There was one homeless person in the area who was convinced that unless he wiped out all of, of uh, modern technology, that San Andreas Fault was going to rupture and kill everyone. So he went and slaughtered Dr. Oda and his whole family in, in their pool with a knife. And there was a whole bunch of these that, that happened in California in the 1970s. And um, the incident in 1980 in Stockton that really started the assault, assault weapons ban. Bubut was one of those examples, a guy who uh, was schizophrenic. He had been uh, involuntarily committed to a mental hospital briefly uh, and had otherwise watered the, the state uh, using the government's, uh, the government gave him a large social security disability check, which he used to buy ammunition and guns all over Oregon and California. And when he became miserable enough, he decided to commit suicide at the school where he had uh, attended elementary school and uh, murdered uh, five children and injured 20-something others. And thereafter, the news media, when they reported on crimes like this, they repeated certain ideas, AK-47, um, children, school. And guess what? Um, this, this became sort of the, the template that mentally ill people across America started to use. And they used an AK-47. Uh, there was one paper mass murderer at a place in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, who went and replaced um, uh, his particular manufacturer's AK-47 with one that was exactly the same as the guy in Stockton, because he wanted to be just like him. And he left a copy of Time magazine open with um, all the details about the Stockton killer underlined in red. So this problem of, of, of the destruction of the mental health system has a lot to do with why we have had this dramatic, uh, apparent dramatic increase in mass murders um, in the last few years. So I wrote a book about well, that and I, I, called My Brother Ron. Um, um, my, my older brother developed schizophrenia when he was in college and um, sort of spiraled down and uh, ended up living on the street for most of his life. But this tragedy has a lot to do with many of the things that are wrong in many of our big cities. Uh, along with the mass murder problem. And it's just one of these things that this is another passion of mine to be concerned about. Because uh, as I pointed out in a couple of these declarations I've submitted, the core problem of mass murder is, is a problem of people with severe mental illness who in an earlier time would have been hospitalized instead of being out wandering the streets killing people. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad you, you mentioned that. Uh, I'm looking at your website here. Again, the book is My Brother Ron, A Personal and Social History of the Deinstitutionalization de of the Mentally Ill. Uh, and this book, it looks like, was published in, in 2012. Uh, and if it's okay with you, I, I know you, you, uh, you, you gave sort of a, a great introduction to it there. Uh, I'll go ahead and read the, the sort of intro you have here on the website. But it says, the book is both the story of my older brother's Descent into Madness and a History of How and Why the United States and eventually most other Western countries abandoned the old system of caring for the severely mentally ill, leading to widespread homelessness, increases in violence, and the de general degradation of urban life. Now, uh, this is something that's extremely interesting to me as well. I, I, 
I'm a criminal defense attorney. That's what I do mostly day to day. So I see this a lot, especially uh, in drug cases. Have you discussed uh, or looked at all into the sort of the the relationship between sort of this mental illness problem and, and the uh, sort of increase in uh, the enforcement and the use of uh, drugs, especially opioids? In certain cases, uh, some categories of mental illness have strong correlations, causal relationships with particular drugs. Marijuana, for example, is now well-established to be a, a cause of schizophrenia. Um, there is a genetic component to schizophrenia, but people who are in, who, whose genetic um, disposition is that direction, uh, it appears that marijuana is a significant part of why they develop, develop schizophrenia. Especially the younger person starts to uh, use marijuana heavily, the greater the risk that they will actually develop schizophrenia uh, in their teens or adulthood. And of course, the, one of the side effects of this is that schizophrenics um, mean that the the uh, in the popular culture, the notion that the person who's hearing voices um, is mentally ill, and, and that in fact schizophrenics develop hallucinations. Uh, they hear things that aren't there. They see things that aren't there. In some cases, they start to feel like there are bugs crawling under their skin, or in some cases, that their skin is on fire. Now, these sort of hallucinations, as you might expect, can cause people to do some really ridiculous and dangerous and horrible things. And uh, um, this is one of the reasons that people with schizophrenia are overrepresented among among people who have been convicted of murder. Mm-hmm. Same thing is true for bipolar disorder. Uh, bipolar disorder one, um, again, they're overrepresented among people who have been convicted of murder. Not just mass murders, but even individual murders. Yeah. So we'll, we'll uh, there's a lot of oh, go ahead. Sorry. connection between uh, drug abuse and uh, mental illness and murder. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate your, your commentary there. And and that brings me to another point, too, uh, talking about this book. You've got, it looks by my count, you've got about 10, 10 books, uh, approximately anyway. Nine. And nine, okay. Well, it looks like three of those, at least, have been written since 2000, or at least published since 2016. You've got one about climate change and social conservatism, and then most recently, the Lock, Stock, and Barrel book. Uh, But one thing I'd I'd like to mention, too, I mean, you've certainly been a prolific writer uh, in books uh, and also scholarly work, uh, but you also suffered a bit of a a health setback, and I I don't want to put you on the spot to talk about this. I'm I'm happy to, to cut it out of the podcast if you're not comfortable talking about it, but you've written at least three of those books since you had that health setback. Right. Yeah. In uh, 2013, I um, had a, um, a kidney stone and uh, I, I drove off to the hospital. A lot of pain thinking I was having appendicitis. I pull up to the uh, uh, the front door of the ER, honking my horn, get out of the car, start walking towards the uh, front door, vomiting and because of the pain. Uh, kidney stone is really bad. And uh, uh, as I'm sitting in the emergency room, uh, the ER doctor says, you know, your heart sounds kind of funny. Another doctor comes in and says, you know, your heart sounds kind of funny. So they send me to a cardiologist after they uh, stabilized the bladder stone, the kidney stone. And he says, you know, your heart sounds kind of funny. Let's go in uh, and uh, do a angiogram and take a look at what your heart is doing. 
Now, when I was uh, about six months old, I had scarlet fever. And um, one of the side effects of that was that um, the uh, aortic valve usually has three leaves to it. Well, in my case, the scarlet fever meant that it now had two leaves. So it was, it was not doing a very good job of pumping blood. So um, I had a, a heart surgeon came in. Great guy. had a, both the heart surgeon and the anesthesiologist were both AR-15 owners. What are the chances of that? Of course, this is I know. They made a little tiny slit about an inch and a half long in between two of my ribs and went in there, cut the old, um, uh, the defective original equipment aortic valve out and put in a, one from the horse. Well, the following year, I had a heart attack unrelated to that because that aortic valve replacement would, did me wonders. Uh, for the first time, I was able to actually run and walk at, at, at altitude. Had a heart attack the following year, and while they were cleaning out uh, one of the arteries, uh, which was clogged, some of the debris went up to my brain. Left, left hemisphere of my brain um, was deprived of oxygen for a while, and uh, I was I was on the right side of my body. I was completely uh, paralyzed for three weeks. Unfortunately, um, I really didn't have the energy to go back to being a software engineer, so I, I ended up retiring on disability, and um, did manage to do a little bit of writing. Anyway, I mean, uh, certainly a full-time job would have been impossible for me to do, but uh, certainly I, I can do part, little little things here and there. Write books, write law review articles, that sort of thing. Yeah, and, and, and you mentioned too that by nature of being left-handed, we were talking about this before we hit the record button, that the impact on your speech was – was uh, less than it might have been if you were right-handed. Would you mind to say a bit about that? That was interesting to me. Okay. It turns out that um, people that are right-handed, uh, because uh, functions of your body left and right are sort of reversed to the brain, if you're right-handed and you have a, um, a stroke of the left hemisphere, it's often very severe in its effects on your ability to speak and to use words. But if you're left-handed, um, the speech centers are distributed in a different way across the brain. Uh, they're not all the left side. And so people who are left-handed um, are, are less likely to be severely impaired by, in their speech and their writing by, by a left hemisphere stroke. So left-handed has, has its advantages at times. This was one of them. Yeah, yeah it, it sounds like uh, people who have who are left-handed are more dynamic in their speech, the, the distribution of the, the speech function in their brain. So... Uh, so that's that's neat. I'm right-handed, but my wife is is left-handed, so she'll be she'll be happy to hear that. <laughs> that's one advantage to being left-handed. All right. So uh, anyway, I, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your book, Lock, Stock, and Barrel. What what motivated you to write? First off, what motivated you to write the book? Well, back in about 2000, one of the things that sort of made me, made my name as an historian was that. There was an historian at a university, Emory University in, in Atlanta, who had written a book called uh, Arming America, in which he claimed that guns had been very rare in America until the Mexican War. Guns were very tightly regulated. Most Americans were not allowed to have home guns in their homes, and hunting was almost unknown. Uh, does any of this seem, seem even slightly plausible? <laughs> not even slightly. Well, of course, most historians immediately started singing the praises of this guy because he was going to, this was the ultimate tool to use against the NRA and it's uh, misreading of the second amendment. The problem is that there were a few people 
like myself and uh, Professor James Lindgren at, at Northwestern University, who uh, proceeded to uh, look carefully at this and say, there's some problems here. Professor Lindgren especially was probate inventories, and he noticed the statistics uh, that uh, this guy, Belial, was using in, a, in both a paper he had published on in his book, and there were things that were utterly inconsistent that did not make any sense. Um, I, start, I had uh, started looking at the sources, things he had, uh, citations, footnotes, looking at the claims he had made for what these things said. I discovered that I could book open pretty much at random, take any page, work my way down, check the footnotes, and find that almost none of them were actually accurate. Um, he misrepresented things. He, he changed the, uh, the wording of federal laws, so they said something completely different from what he claimed. And uh, this wow. was widespread. Uh, eventually, um, he's now, last I read, he's now a bartender in Connecticut. He had just been promoted to, uh, to given tenure at Emory University, and people like me were asking these questions. And eventually, Emory University called in some experts to make all this um, yammering go away uh, about their fine professor. And um, the the experts that were called in looked at it, asked a whole bunch of questions, and basically issued a report saying, um, this this guy, um, they didn't, they were, they were replied, they were basically saying he was a liar, not a very good one. And uh, he got very miffed and quit in the middle of the semester, in the middle of the school year, which I think probably means he was told, we don't really want you here, get going. Anyway, he had also won uh, the prestigious Bancroft Prize for uh, his book. And uh, Columbia University, when they realized that, they, that this was a fraud, they demanded their $4,000 back and revoked his prize. First time they'd ever done that. So um, anyway, uh, so Bleal, Bleal's um, fraud was sort of forgotten, right? Well, a few, a few were in, in 2019, a book came out called uh, The Gunning of America by someone named uh, Haig. Pamela Haig, right. Right. And um, her claim was that um, what's really sad is the footnotes on the very first page, when you look them up, they basically says, well, Bleal may have had some arithmetic errors in his work, but it's fundamental claim that guns were very rare in early America. And that wasn't wrong. Unlike uh, Bleal, who basically just made things up, um, Haig's book is more a matter of uh, um, fairly careless reading and uh, pulling things out of context and feeling to realize, oh, gee, if I look at the page before this, I would see something completely contradicting my claim. But so it was a, it was a, basically wrote a book analyzing um, the flaws in her claims and looking more generally at the development of gun culture in the United States. So um, her book did not get anywhere near the, the press that Arming America did. And not surprisingly, my book, um, Refuting Bleal, got almost no attention at all. Uh, and so my book, Lock, Stock, and Barrel, also received almost no attention at all because her book received almost no attention at all. So this is one of the frustrations. Uh, you, I should warn you that you don't usually make money writing books. Uh, what you do is you make money writing articles uh, or working as an expert uh, witness in court cases as a result of the research that you've done. Well, I, I wouldn't mind. It, it, maybe at the end, I'd like you to say a little bit about that because you're you're still doing some work on some court cases uh, around the country. I know, uh, at least in California and in a few other states. Uh, of course, especially in light of Bruin, there's been sort of a firestorm of, of cases with lots of uh, demand for an expert in history 
you know, in these cases, because that's of course the uh, standard yep. set forth in Bruin is if if the uh, propose if the challenged law implicates yep. the Second Amendment, the government has to uh, has the burden to show that it, it, it the prohibition is consistent with the text, history, and tradition of of the Second Amendment. And so, uh, people like like you are in in high demand. I would I would think uh, yes. in these cases going around state and, and federal courts nationwide. So uh, at the end, I'd like you to say a little bit about that, but uh, sticking to, to lock, stock, and barrel for at least a, a little bit longer here, uh, you mentioned this uh, Belial and Hague, um, and, and these are sort of, I, I think, what you re would refer to as revisionist historians, right, uh, who sort of caricature the the gun culture as a, a relatively new thing, something that was developed in, in recent history only after large gun manufacturers sort of uh, bombarded, you know, Americans with with marketing. And there really wasn't much of a gun culture at all prior to the, the Civil War. Uh, I, I think you, you say 1848 uh, in, in in the book. Um, so could, could you say a little bit about that? What, what did you do to sort of refute their claims? Well, one of the, the claims that uh, both Leal and um, Haig made was that until Samuel Colt persuaded Americans they really needed a handgun, there was really not much demand for handguns. The fact is that handguns are actually pretty common throughout American history. They're not as common as rifles and shotguns, but uh, you can find ads selling pistols as early as 1720 in Boston. Um, and uh, there's no shortage of gunsmiths who's, who make and sell pistols in America, and um, it's not at all difficult to find evidence that the, that uh, handguns are fairly regularly carried and used. And this is not the result of clever marketing. This is the fact that Americans from the very beginning have carried handguns for self-defense. Uh, one of the things I did in, in, in when I was reviewing Haig's book um, it should make some references to things that were in Samuel Colt's um, business records. And uh, I've been asked to go speak at the University of Connecticut Law School about the problems of mental illness and mass murder. So my wife and I, while we were there, we went to the uh, Connecticut Historical Society and looked through the Samuel Colt's records. We had the letter book showing all the letters that uh, Colt had, had, uh, had written, um, basically to and from uh, wholesalers, and it was a chance to see that it's possible to advance in life even when you can't spell and your handwriting is terrible. Sam Colt's handwriting was absolutely awful. But it was also pretty easy to establish that there was a very high demand for handguns. And most people don't realize that uh, repeating handguns are, are not Sam Colt's invention. There are uh, what are called pepper boxes, which are a type of repeating handgun, which was in common use from the um, throughout the uh, period before Samuel Colt. And in fact, there are even flip-lock pepper boxes that were manufactured uh, in the uh, late 18th century. Yeah, so one one thing that I love about this book is that you go back not just to the time of the, the founding, but you go back even really to, to the early 1600s uh, and, and look at, at statutes and original source material from, uh, you know, from some of the early colonies. Uh, and you even talk about, for instance, some laws in Virginia, at least one I remember where there was a law that required uh, church attendance and that, that you be armed 
to to attend church and and so these sorts of things were i think and correct me if i'm wrong here meant to point out that that firearms ownership and the carrying of arms in public was not only common it was expected it was required um yeah in fact in some colonies from the age of 15 you were required to show for militia duty with a gun and this is something that has uh, become an issue in some of the states that, uh, that prohibit possession of handguns for people under 21 is we can show that not only were there no laws prohibiting people under 21 from possessing firearms, there were laws requiring to possess them. Yeah, and, and it wasn't always for the, and this, this goes, you mentioned the militia there, that, that some people were re required to possess them uh, so that they could appear for participation in the militia. But it wasn't just for that, right? I mean, it wasn't exclusive. The, the purpose of serving in the militia wasn't the only reason that firearms were required to be owned. There were other uh, reasons that people either owned them voluntarily or that they were expected to carry them or required to carry them, like for attending church. Uh, it, it, would, you, would you mind just give a few examples and talk about some of those? Sure. Both Georgia and South Carolina have passed laws requiring you to be armed when you went to church. And... Um, Case of South Carolina, they actually required elders of the church to uh, search uh, men coming into the church to verify they were actually armed. And in some places, like uh, Plymouth Colony, at one point uh, required that it, that if anyone was uh, that no person could travel to Boston, which was a separate colony individually, and if in a group they had to all be armed um, to defend themselves against an Indian attack. So. Um, and, of course, lots of people are armed because they hunt. Um, this is, after all, land fulfilled with um, wildlife that has never heard a gunshot, and it really doesn't have much fear of people. So I think it's not difficult here. And um, there's lots of accounts of people describing how um, uh, almost everywhere you go, there, there, there are huge flocks of birds available to be taken for hunt by hunting. Yeah, and you look you look not only at at some of the the laws early on in the in the colonies, but also other original source material like uh, letters and, and news publications, newspapers, uh, things like that. And there were there were uh, these publications or or letters that encouraged settlers to bring a firearm or to acquire a firearm when they arrived for the purpose of of hunting and and also for for defense. Right? I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't something that very few people did, and it was something that people were encouraged to do before they even got here. Yeah, Maryland actually required uh, that, that if, you, if you came here to sell, you had to bring a gun and ammunition. Yeah, to even – I think you mentioned even to obtain title to property right. in Maryland. I think this was Maryland. You had to have a firearm. Is right. that right? Yes, uh, several colonies yeah. also had laws that specified that if you came here as an indentured servant, once your term of indenture was over, you were now free, a free person. Um, your master was required, in the case of men, to give them a gun because they would have to have that in order to perform militia duty if they were called to it. Yeah. That's something so, people don't realize you, that militia duty was something that was uh, imposed on pretty much every uh, free white male until 1903. By, by federal law. Yeah, one thing, as I was uh, reading your book and preparing for this episode, I came across an article 
Uh, and this is partly what I love about about your book. You you just take us right to the original source material. Um, but the article was called, and this is from Intellectual Takeout. It was called "Why People Fall for Fake History," and this sort of gets to your point about uh, refuting uh, Belial and and in Hague. And the article says here. Uh, because accurately reconstructing the past is difficult and painstaking work, it involves consulti- consulting largely unknown works, reading obscure texts in their original languages, and avoiding hasty generalizations. Most people have neither the time, nor talent, nor energy for it, so they rely on select paragraphs in their history textbooks and journalistic presentations of the past. They content themselves with oversimplified narratives that confirm their biases. Uh, would you agree with that? Do you do you agree with the sentiment in that about why people often fall for the sort of fake history that, uh, like, put forth by Belial and, and Haig? Yes, I would, because especially if if the fake history satisfies the political needs they have, that is going to definitely be a, a reason to take it seriously. Yeah. Yeah. A great and, many and, spaces and, I've been working on have involved uh, the state business telling a bunch of people who have PhDs in history, hey, we need evidence to prove that uh, um, that this law that we're trying to justify has uh, some historical basis to it. Please go find us something. And so these PhDs in history go off and find stuff that in many cases isn't there. You know, I've gotten yeah. way too many of these where I've looked at the, the, the source that they cited and discovered it doesn't say that at all. And... Um, but it's what the state wants to hear, and so the state goes ahead and pays the experts, in some cases, $750 an hour to go through and, and create basically nonsense. Hmm. Would you mind, with that in mind, would you mind to talk about what sort of process you went through to collect the source material for, for this book and what challenges you encountered coming up with the, the source material? Well, first of all, you need to know where to start looking. One place to start looking is. There is an enormous number of travel accounts, people who visited America in either the colonial or early republic period. Um, they recount what they saw, the things that they did, the places they went, the people they talked to. And it's often really quite interesting work. And you find an awful lot of accounts with people who moved out to the frontier. Uh, there's one book that uh, Michael Blill had said uh, was one of many books that showed that guns were not commonly present on the, uh, in the American frontier. So I opened up that book, and it has an entire chapter titled The Rifle. It opens with, a uh, reader, were you ever fired with the love of rifle shooting? And this is a book that had that makes uh, apparently no mention of guns, uh, to, at least to Michael Bleal. So this involves reading, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of pages of books uh, written by people over quite a period of time, seeing what they had to say about uh, the times. Another thing that's very nice is that in the last few years, books.google.com has become a major source. They've digitized, um, I'm not sure how many pages, but a vast number of books from libraries all over the world. And um, I can go through and I can ask to see, uh, okay, I want to see all the laws that were passed by Indiana in 1819. And boom, there's the volume, a printed copy that I can search through. And uh, if someone gives me a page number, and I can look that up and see if they've actually accurately quoted it. And much of the time, they have not. With many of these uh, uh, historical experts whose declarations I've, I've been rebutting, all I have to do is find the, the original document and see that uh, they are quoting it out of context or in some cases they're, they're leaving words out, words that really change the meaning of it dramatically. 
so so you go you you start like I said uh, kind of really going back even to the early 1600s in your book and and sort of drawing out the the fact that not only was uh, gun ownership common it was expected it was required in lots of circumstances and you sort of proceed uh, chronologically uh, mostly through really through the modern era and uh, you provide tons of of original source material uh, one thing i'd like to just touch on and there's no way we can touch on all the the history and examples here in the, this podcast i would encourage people obviously to to get your book and, and read it. Of course, I think now it's more important than ever for people to understand this, uh, especially in, in light of Bruin, if people want to understand the arguments that are being made in court and, and understand some of the revisionist history arguments that are being made uh, by the government in, in lots of circumstances. Uh, but one thing I'd like you to talk about before we get to what you're up to these days in terms of your, your work as an expert um, is this notion that somehow gun culture didn't really start until there was heavy marketing by these gun manufacturers like like Colt, like Winchester? Uh, would you mind to say a little bit about that and what your perspective is about uh, sort of the expansion of gun culture, if if that's the correct word? I'm not sure that there's ever a time when you could say there was a gun culture. Guns are, have been part of our culture from the, from the founding of this country. I mean, there are guns present at every one of these uh, colonies at the, from the very start. Maryland, for example, within a few years of the colony being founded, actually has several gunsmiths making guns, which kind of surprised me. See guns being made so so early in these colonies. Uh, part of it is that uh, Americans industrialized pretty quickly. Um, by the 1650s, um, New England, they were successfully smelting uh, iron uh, from uh, from bog iron, which is a type of, uh, of iron ore that's often found in, in swamps. And from this, they were able to make steel. And uh, pretty quickly, I mean, guns are such a fundamental part of, of Western civilization, uh, at least since about 1500, that it was sort of unavoidable that guns would become a fundamental part of our culture. All right. Well, um, I think that's where we'll leave it with with your book for now. Like I said, I, I I'd encourage our listeners to go check it out. I'll, I'll link to the to the Amazon uh, link so that people can go check it out and purchase it. Unless, is there a better place for that for our viewers to, to buy it, or is Amazon as good as any? Fine. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes so our our listeners can find it easily, and I'll also link to to your website with the list of your your other books. But obviously, with your expertise in in gun culture and in gun history and just history in general, uh, you're somebody who I expect would be in high demand, especially with all these cases being filed on the in the wake of Bruin. Uh, can you say a little bit about what you're up to these days? Uh, are you busy? Uh, I take it uh, <laughs> working on some of these cases. Busy does not even begin to describe it. I mean, uh, I, I've actually lost crowd, count of how many different cases I've been asked to either submit expert declarations in or write uh, rebuttals to their expert declarations in. Um, just got a victory uh, uh, today. The uh, uh, California had passed a, a law that 
basically said that people with concealed weapon permits would not be allowed to carry guns in. And then they came up with a list of places that basically meant that most of the state would be off limits to people with concealed weapon permits. Yeah. yeah. Much like the law in New York, right? The uh, law in concealed carry. Yeah. Yeah. And they all, they all have uh, very friendly sounding names like Concealed Carry Improvement Act or, or something like that, right? right? Yeah. So what I, what the case was called the May v. Bonta. And basically, we were challenging um, that most of these locations have no historical precedent um, for being prohibited uh, for gun ownership. Um, but in cases, because these things did not exist, there were no public libraries, for example, before 1791. None. There are a few private lending libraries like Ben Franklin's, but no public libraries. Uh, there are no zoos. And so the prohibition on, on being armed with a zoo has no historical precedent to it. And so what I did is I ended up with 13 declarations uh, that I said, I don't know how I managed to do this in only 12 days, but I managed to sit down and go through uh, these and examine them in detail. In a number of cases, these declarations uh, didn't even list any laws from that period that they claimed were uh, were uh, models for current law. Um, in many cases, they were just discussions of the history of libraries or the history of zoos. Um, and... Uh, there were some that actually uh, did make substantial claims about laws that were in existence before 1791. But um, so I sat down and I wrote rebuttals to all 13 of these declarations. Um, lots of frantic typing um, and a lot of looking things up, checking their, their sources to see if they actually said what they claimed, finding in many cases, no, they did not. And so uh, we got a victory on that today. Um, basically, the uh, uh, a district, federal district judge in California went ahead and issued an order, basically, uh, uh, it's a preliminary injunction against uh, the uh, uh, state enforcing this new law. So people with concealed weapon permits uh, will be able to go ahead and continue to carry to a lot of places that the state wanted to prohibit them from carrying. So this is was important to California because they know that because of Bruin, they're going to have to start issuing concealed weapon permits a little bit more readily than they have done in the past. I mean, in the past, a lot of counties, if you wanted to get a seal one permit, you basically had to bribe uh, the sheriff or the police chief, or you had to make a, a more disguised form, which was to make heavy contributions to the sheriff's re-election campaign. Um, this has been a problem in a number of states throughout the country for many years. But um, now they're going to have to start issuing permits on a shallow issue basis. They want to make sure those permits were basically useless so that people would have very little reason to actually get a permit. To some extent, uh, the legislature was terrified that the people will not be sufficiently terrified of people with guns. So, I mean, if, if you're terrified of mass murder and you know that no one's going to be able to defend them, defend themselves from a mass murderer, then the obvious thing is, oh, we have more reason to, to fear and hate guns. So, um, and it looks like the, uh, so I looked at the beginning of this uh, decision by this judge, it looks like he sort of accepted my argument that basically the, this was an attempt to keep people in terror by saying, uh, if you if you have if you pass the very demanding requirements for concealed weapon permit in California, uh, psychological testing, uh, training requirements, and so on, um, we're still not going to trust you to carry a gun in public places. Um, he basically seems to have accepted my claim that this was intended just to keep people in terror. I uh, while you were just talking there, I actually looked up the case. Uh, it's May et al. v. Bonta. And I looked up the case at uh, Michelle and Associates, which, of course, um, I don't know if this case was 
funded or, or uh, supported by the California Rifle and Pistol Association or not, but it I know was. Michelle and Associates. Okay. I know they do a lot of work for uh, California Rifle and Pistol Association. Um, but I've found the link to your declaration and also to the judge's uh, to the judge's order. So I'll, I'll certainly link to that in the show notes as well. It looks like your declaration was, was 40 pages and the judge's order was 43 pages. So there's certainly some good reading there. Uh, but that's not the only case you've been, you've been involved in, right? You've been looking at, uh, things elsewhere as well, right? Yes. Uh, I just got done filing a declaration for the, uh, uh large capacity magazine ban in, in Washington state. That was very interesting because most people don't realize that there were repeating uh, firearms before the 1791. Um, in fact, interestingly enough, there was a very deadly air rifle called the Gerardoni that was used by the Austrian army against the Ottoman Empire. Um, at least 1,500 of them were, were made and used. Um, these, this is a pretty deadly weapon. And my understanding is it was, also used, it was also used on the Lewis and Clark expedition, was my understanding. Yes, yes they, yeah. they took it with them. Um, this this uh, this rifle uh, could fire twenty five shots, and it was not unique. Uh, there are examples I can find of from newspaper ads uh, that show that uh, these guns were present as, at least as early as the seventeen thirties in some parts of New England. They were not common, but they were present. And if, if the founders did not pass any laws restricting repeating arms of any sort, then it's pretty and, and they did exist. Then it's a pretty good indication that. Um, they did not see that as an issue. In fact, uh, the Continental Congress actually funded development of a repeating musket. Um, uh, two two members of uh, of the uh, one 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 of the Continental Army generals and uh, a guy named Rittenhouse, who was one of the early instrument makers of Pennsylvania, uh, had seen this this guy Belton demonstrate a musket that could fire sixteen shots without reloading. And uh, of course, the Continental Congress said, "Gee, that sounds interesting." Let's here, here's some money. Go ahead and try to develop this into a useful weapon we can, we can buy and use. So repeating arms were present, and we can show that they were present. So uh, the 10-round the, the, the magazine uh, limit that Washington is pushing for has no historical basis to it. What's, uh, what's the name of that case? Do you uh, um, recall? Rumbach v. Ferguson. Okay. I'll try to link to that one as well. Well, I know uh, by, your, by your reaction to by your reaction to my question about whether or not you've been busy, it's obvious that you have been, and I have no doubt that that you have many other cases where you're providing your expertise. Uh, and it's certainly I appreciate your your work. I want to thank you for that because the the efforts of the the gun grabbers, the gun control groups, is is persistent. And it seems to never end, and they're finding all kinds of creative ways to try to get around the the guidance from the Supreme Court in, in Bruin. So, uh, you know, your your expertise in this historical analysis and sort of refuting these arguments being put forth is is certainly invaluable. Um, what else would you? Is there anything you'd like to say? We're going over a little over an hour here, and I'm happy to keep going, but I want to wrap up here before too long. Is there anything else you'd like to point folks to? I've, obviously, I've talked about your blog. Um, you've got the blog spot. You've got uh, all these books that I'm going to link to as well, as well as some of your uh, declarations in these cases that are currently pending. Is there anything else you want to point out to to the, to the listeners? Well, if you're at all curious. Uh... 
on my website, ClaytonKramer.com, uh, one of the links is to uh, um, scholarly articles that I've published. And on that page is a list of all of the court cases where my work has been cited. It's a fairly long list. And uh, tragically, I have trouble keeping up because um, I get notified by um, by Google on a, uh, almost daily basis when a court case um, citing my work um, has been uh, has, has shown up. I, I've got that link pulled up in front of me now. Uh, and I just by a brief glance, I mean, I see cases that I that I recognize and have, have talked about on, on numerous occasions. So I'm um, looking at Duncan v. Becerra out of the Ninth Circuit, Young v. Hawaii, uh, Ezel versus City of Chicago, which was out of the Seventh Circuit. So lots of really important cases that uh, where your work has been cited. So I uh, certainly would encourage people to go go check out that. And of course, any declarations uh, that you've submitted any of any of those cases. Um, all right, Clay. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me and to, to join the show. Uh, just I want to give you an opportunity to hear any any last words you'd like to to uh, tell the audience before we close up. Um, nothing comes to mind. Just remember that this is a afraid going to be a fairly long term struggle. We're dealing with people for whom this is a form of religion. Um, um, there's a there's a rationality in their in their fear of guns and more important the fear of the people that own them. Uh, there's a those of us that are the deplorables really scare the wits out of them because we we're not easily told what to do. I used to get my ice cream cones from a woman with a, a tattoo on her arm. It was not a particularly fashionable tattoo; it was just a number. She was one of the survivors of the Holocaust. She was very fortunate that um, her value as a capital good. Uh, as a capital asset, making things for the National Socialist government was greater than her scrap value, uh, the value she would have had if they had gassed her and taken her apart for her gold fillings. Um, but, I mean, that's what happens when governments have unlimited powers. More than occasionally, they run completely out of control in their effort to use that power in inappropriate ways. Being armed is one of our ways to resist that. Yeah. Yeah, control, you said it's sort of like a religion, and the religion here is control, right? And, and control at the, hands of, at the hands of the government. And, it's uh, and like you People said. People like us might say no. Yeah, and, and like you say, an armed citizenry is, is the, the sort of antidote to that. Yeah. Yes, and in, one, in the case that is submitted, director just submitted in Rumbach, I went to uh, – uh, Federalist uh, 46, where uh, Madison actually says that um, a tyrannical government would be resisted by half a million armed citizens. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great. Uh, I'll, I'll link to that as well. Uh, Federalist 46, I, of course, encourage people to to read the Federalist Papers in their entirety, but uh, I'll link to that one in particular. Uh, the other thing I want to point out here in closing, early in your book, in the preface, you you reference the book 1984 by George Orwell, and it seems more and more prophetic, uh, sort of the, the further we go into, uh, into the future. Uh, but you reference this quote, it's a ministry of truth slogan. He who controls the past controls the future, and he who controls the present controls the past. Uh, would you mind to say why you included that and why, why that's a – I love that quote. Um, but why did, why did you include that in the book? 
Michael Bleal's attempt and also Haig's attempt to rewrite the past, make it into a past where there was no guns, and according to Bleal, there was no violence against between whites, um, is an attempt to create a past that did not exist because he's trying to create a future where there are no guns. And so, perfect. Be very careful that we do not let history get uh, modified to suit the needs of, of of the present. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a, a very useful quote to include at the beginning because I think it helps people understand why the history that you're giving them is so important. Because to understand where we are and and where we're going, we have to understand where where we've been, and this sort of revisionist history is is trying to change the not only the the narrative of history, but the the course of the future uh, by rewriting history. So uh, I I really like that you included that quote. Uh, The last thing I want to mention here, you uh, mentioned in the closing of your preface sort of questions that you address in the book. And I think this is helpful to, uh, for people to sort of get an idea for, for where, what you address in the book, and there's five questions here. You say, was gun ownership um, and in consequence gun manufacturing and gunsmithing rare before 1840? We've talked about that. Uh, was the civilian market for pistols small or non-existent before 1848? How did gunsmithing, including gun manufacturing, develop in colonial and early Republic America? What role did the gun manufacturing industry play in not only transforming American industry, but also creating the modern industrial world across Western civilization? And was American gun culture actually created by gun makers through clever marketing? So uh, all the things we've talked about today here in the show, and as well as these questions you address in your book, I encourage people to check it out, like I said, because it helps people understand Real history, not the revisionist history that we often hear in the media and from gun control advocates uh, in cases circulating in this federal courts nationwide. Uh, so this this book will arm you with the history that you need to know to be informed and to refute the narrative that's being pushed by uh, these gun control advocates. So, uh, of course, you wrote this and it was published in 2018. You didn't know that the Bruin decision obviously was going to come down in 2022, but uh, I think it was was very good timing. So uh, thanks thanks for the book uh, and thanks for your time joining the podcast. Okay. Thanks for having me. Glad to yeah. be here. Anytime you want to come back and talk, for example, about the thing about the role of gun manufacturing and creating the modern industrial world, that in itself was a fascinating half-hour to an hour discussion. Machining is one of my little hobbies. So – Oh, excellent. Yeah, I'd be, be glad to have you back on. That sounds like it'd be an interesting podcast. Yes, and it's interesting, even a lot more broadly than just about guns. Yeah. So, okay. All right, well, thanks again, Clayton, for joining the show, uh, and thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to like and subscribe to help us spread the message of freedom. And until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Forge of Freedom. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. For more information or to connect with Alex, you can go to forgeoffreedom.com or follow him on Twitter at Forge of Freedom. Until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom.